Well, it's not often you're going to see Tom Brady cry, right? At least not uh, today, hopefully. How many of you are Pats fans out there? There we go, there we go, yeah. My wife's not, but I am. So it could be trouble at the Zimmerman house this afternoon. Well, good morning to all of you in Souderton, and good morning to all of you in Quakertown. How about if we join them in welcoming them and them welcoming us? That's great. We got to hear you all sing a little while ago. Yeah, you need to work on that a little, but it, it was actually good on our end. It was good, thanks. And uh, we're in a series that we're calling Vital Signs, in which we're looking at some of the priorities, some of the areas, some of the categories of life that we can look at to determine our spiritual health. So with our bodies, there are certain measures that the physicians take to show whether we're healthy and on the right track or not. Well, the Bible gives us some spiritual categories and measures that we need to look at to make sure we're on the road to health spiritually. Now, last week, we looked at a couple negative uh, vital signs. We looked at complaining and comparing. Now, I know all of you solved those problems this week, but I do have a couple other negatives for this week. We're going to look at hurry and worry. Do any of you ever feel hurried or worried? All right, we're going to start with a little quiz just to see if you need this message. And if none of you need it, we'll just close in prayer and get ready for the game. Um, how many of you uh, really dislike Notre Dame? Raise your hands. All right, thank you, God, for all those people. That's a good thing. How many of you know someone, either a close friend, a family member, that passed away because of cancer the last six months? Raise your hand. Boy, look at that. Yeah, it's tough to deal with. We live in a world where illness... Uh, takes everybody we love. How many of you live with, have ever lived with or lived with a sense of anxiety, hurry, stress, not able to get things done in enough time? Raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you, you all voted. You need this sermon, right? And now we're going to come back to that at the end. But here's my guess. We all know that we're trying to do too much with the time that we have. We all know that we've got a long to-do list and a short hourly list. And we're wondering how all that stuff is going to fit into those few hours. And let's be honest, most of the time it doesn't. And even if we do have a little breathing space, right, we live with the sense as if we're still in a hurry, even if we have nowhere to go. There are some symptoms. You ever live with the symptoms? Well, let me show you a video of what we often look like as we're living life by this frantic pace. Uh, we're like a basset hound trying to catch the school bus, right? And now, look, you can tell by looking, basset hounds were not meant for speed, right? But here's our problem. We're not meant to live at that breakneck speed either, but we often do. Let me tell you a story as you watch the video. True story from Thursday. I leave the office Thursday to meet a friend for lunch, and we go to the pizza shop two doors down from Dunkin' Donuts here. And so you know where that is? In Dunkin'. So I go in. I park in the rear because I don't want to be out front. I don't want you all to think I eat lunch at Dunkin' Donuts, right? So I park in the back so you won't see me. Well, it's time for me to leave. And as I pull out of the parking spot in the rear, I go around. There's a long line through the takeout window. And there's a tractor trailer on the far side where the garage is. I can't get out the exit. Or if I get in the line to go through the takeout window, it's going to take me like two minutes to get out. So what do I do? I go out the entrance. But as I'm halfway out the entrance, two cars are coming in the entrance. Now I'm stuck in the entrance. Cars, I back out very carefully. And I am sitting like the basset hound, not being able to wait to get out of the parking lot. You ever live like that? Yeah, sure we do. 
We're running a thousand miles an hour, too much to do, and not enough day, hours, or time to get it done. Well, here are a few symptoms. Tell me if any of these uh, resonate or ring true with you. Lack of time. How many, now be honest, how many of you checked your phone at least once since you've been in the auditorium? And look at that, right? And you'll check it many more times, right? Because the sermon will get boring and you'll need something to do in the middle of it. Uh, we've got to check, right? Do you realize the majority of people now sleep with the cell phone right nearby? They check it before they go to bed. If they hear it buzz, or they immediately have to check it in the night. First thing in the morning, they check it. It's giving you all the to-dos to do. In fact, I read an article a couple of weeks ago that said most Americans now look for things to do so they can multitask while the microwave is cooking their dinner. 30 seconds on a microwave, and well, what can I do in 30 seconds, right? Clean, clean a couple dishes, go to the refrigerator, do this, make half my sandwich. We're looking for things to do when the microwave's cooking at 30 seconds. A lack of time. Secondly, a lack of depth. Do you ever feel like you're just kind of skimming through life? Not being able to give the time, the energy, the thought, the reflection you need to a particular task? Um, here's where uh, some of you probably feel it. I know that many of you in the room kind of began 2017 saying, you know what, I'm going to read the Bible a few times a week, maybe every day, a couple times. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to pick something. I'm going to read through the Gospels. I'm going to read through the New Testament. I'm going to read through the Bible 50 times, whatever it is for the year, right? But then when you actually sit down to do it, you breeze through it. You ever finish and say, now, what did I read? What? There's no depth, right? Your mind is thinking of all the things you have to do that day. Or you take a few minutes to pray, but your mind's all over the place thinking of everything you have to do. There's a lack of depth. There's depth because we have so much to do. The future is destroying the present, and there's no depth. But here's another symptom, a lack of compassion. You know, there was a study done on compassion a few years ago at a seminary. There was a group of uh, seminary students, and they were in a homiletics class. Homiletics is just preaching. And so there were 30 students in the class. The professor divided them into three groups of 10. And here's what the professor said. I want you all to prepare, each of you has to, pre has to prepare a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Now, Good Samaritan, that parable, is about somebody who's beaten up, left bloody, left for dead on the side of the road. And all these religious types go by, and they're too busy to stop. So they just kind of blow by. Eventually, a filthy, creepy Samaritan helps the guy, right? So they have to prepare a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And then go to another building on campus and preach the sermon. Then the professor walked to each of the groups, and here's what he said. Come on, you guys have to hurry up. You don't have much time. to. Come on, finish up. You only have a minute. Get to the other building. They're waiting for you. But it was a setup. In between the buildings, there were people kind of like the person stuck on the side of the road. They were all disheveled. They were, in, you know, they were wrapped up in kind of a hood that looked dirty and smelled bad. They were groaning as the people went by. Do you know only one seminary student, in process of studying the Good Samaritan, even stopped to talk to the guy who was groaning on the sidewalk because they were in such a hurry to go preach the sermon on the Good Samaritan? You see, if you don't have time... It's tough to be compassionate, right? Oh, yeah, and if you hear a sermon on the Good Samaritan, that means we need to have eyes open and hearts open and a little bit of time in our schedule that we can actually show compassion. Symptoms. Do you have any of those symptoms? Oh, yeah, you already raised your hand. I know you do. Well, what's the solution? The Bible gives us the solution. 
The solution to the hurry, worry life, and we all live the symptoms, the solution is Sabbath. And some of you think, oh my good, Charles, I don't have time for Sabbath. In fact, I'm giving you 30 minutes here. I wish you'd hurry the heck up. Now, Sabbath, now, listen to me. Sabbath isn't primarily about a day. It's about a way of life. Sabbath is not primarily about activities or abstaining from act activities. Sabbath is primarily about priorities. Sabbath is primarily about attitude. Sa Sabbath is primarily about a rhythm. Sabbath is primarily about trust. And I can prove it to you. So what I'm, we're going to do for the next couple minutes, we're going to talk about Sabbath. And I'm going to hopefully help you understand it's not about a day. It's about a way, a way to live. All the way back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. That's the beginning, right? You can't get any more beginning than that. Genesis chapter 1. In the first few verses of the chapter, God creates everything, right? God speaks and stuff's created. Day one, day two. We're not going to get into a big debate how long the days were, all right? Uh, that, that, that's another sermon. I kind of think it was a really, really long time, but that's okay. We're not talking about that. Um, there were days. God makes light, God makes land, God makes sky, God makes water, God makes everything. God makes animals, God makes plants, God makes all that stuff. And on the sixth day, God makes us. So here we go. Then God said, this is day six, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they will rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the livestock, etc. On day six, God makes people. On day six, God makes our first parents, Right? Okay, next slide. By the seventh day, God had finished all the work he was doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Let's stop there. Why did God rest? Because he was tired? No, God's not tired. It's not like God says, oh my goodness, I'm exhausted. I made all this stuff in six days. I need a day off. No, that's not. God's omnipotent. God's sovereign. He's not tired. Why does God rest on the seventh day? Actually, if you read through the first chapter, you kind of know why. At the end of every day, God says, ah, that's good, that's good. At the end of day two, that's good, that's good. God stops at the end of each day, looks at what he made that day, and says, I did good, good work today. At the end of day six, God says, this is very good. This is very, this is great. I didn't do a good job. I did a great job. God looks at all the stuff he made and he delights in it. He celebrates it. He rejoices in everything that he made. And on day six when he made people, that's the day he says, this is very good. He makes people in his likeness, in his image. We just read that. And at the end of day six, he says, this is great. We know kind of what that's like, right? You make something, you look at it and say, I did a good job. I don't say that often with something I made with my hands or something I fixed, but hey, you, look, you do that, right? Kim is in the process of needlepointing a stocking for our soon coming grandson. And as she's making the stock, every once in a while she'll hold it up and say, that's good. It is good, right? I look at it and say, Glad I don't have to count all those little things. Thank God Kim's doing it, not me. But you know what it's like? You build something. You paint a room. You put something together from Ikea. Uh, that never fits together from Ikea. Uh, but you make something. You, you look, stand back and say, that's good. That's what God does, right? Now, here's where it takes a little math. Here's where your head may hurt, right? 
Day, every day, God says, this is good, this is good. He reflects, he, he delights in what he's made. After day six, he says, this is really good. On day seven, he ceases from all his work. It's a day of delighting. It's a day of contemplating. It's a day of rejoicing. Now notice, what day did God make people on day six? Which means, what did people do their first day here? They rested. Isn't that neat? That would be like showing up at a new job and your first day your boss says, okay, you can go home now, have a good day, we'll start work tomorrow. You say, I love this job, right? Um, the first day people are here is the day of rest. I mean, I want to sign up for that, right? Why? Did human beings have to rest on the seventh day because they were tired? They didn't do anything yet. They just showed up. And now they're their first day here, they're resting? Why? Okay, think. What was God doing? God's looking around at all the stuff he made. He's delighting in it. He's reflecting on it. He's celebrating it. And that's what our first parents were doing. They were looking around at all the cool stuff God made. And they're saying, look at this flowers. This is great. Trees, clouds, bushes, Eve, Adam. This is wonderful. But it didn't stop there for Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve went from what was made to the one that made it. Don't you think? And so as they're looking at all the cool stuff God made, wouldn't they have immediately said, boy, these flowers are great. You know what? God must be greater yet. He can make this stuff. He just talked and here it was. God made my spouse. God made everything. What a God. Right? They would move from the creation to the creator. They were delighting in what God made, but the creation was not the end. It was the means to the end. They looked at creation and moved from creation to the one that made it, and that was their first day here. That's what they were supposed to do. Got it? And so they rested. They rested and reflected and contemplated and delighted and moved from the creation to the creator. All right, next uh, couple of verses from the book of Exodus. Now let me uh, walk you to the verse. Uh, we said last week, and just in case you weren't here, I'll do it again. Um, when we come to the book of Exodus, the Israelites, right, the people of God, they've been enslaved in Egypt for like 400 years. They've been enslaved. Okay, question. How many days off do you think you'd get if you were a slave? Like they work six days and take a day off? Oh, no, 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 no. When they were in, in bondage, they worked seven days a week. And their job was to make bricks. And even though, you know, you're kind of a slave and you're making bricks, if they're anything like me, right? I'm not sure where this comes from. If they're anything like me, I would soon begin to count the bricks I'm making and looking over how many bricks you're making. And I'd say, oh, I make more bricks than you. And if you made a little more, I'd work harder to make a few more. Because my identity would be kind of wrapped up in how many bricks I'm making. And even though I'm in bondage, even though I'm kind of being exploited, I would still want to play a game with that. Just like driving on the turnpike, right? I hate when people pass me. I have to pass that. Well, it's kind of like making bricks, right? I mean, you have a lousy job. You're like a slave. But you're still kind of, we're hardwired to perform and compete, right? And so we're making bricks. Well, I'm making more bricks than you. That's kind of what they're doing. Well, eventually, God delivers them. The people of Israel, they groan to God. They complain. And God says, well, it's not good that my people are in captivity here. God raises up a deliverer, Moses, sends Moses to Egypt. And through miracles and the opening of the Red Sea and all kinds of cool things, God delivers Israel from Egypt, and now they're free. They're in the desert. They're wandering. They're free. 
No longer slaves. No more brick making. Their bondage, all that oppression is over. And God says, how do you like that? And they say, we're really thirsty out here. You know, we were in Egypt. They gave us water. We had nothing out here, God. So God gives them water. After a while, I say, well, we kind of need something to go with the water, God. You know, you can only live on water so long. We really need something to eat. And God gives them manna. But here's the interesting stipulation that comes with the manna. God gives them manna six days a week. Did you know that? They don't get manna seven days. They get manna six days a week. And here's what God said. Here's how the manna deal works. Manna's going to be like, you know, like frost. You know, it looks like frost kind of out on the lawn. And it's, it's going to be like, you know, a little bit of flour. You kind of mix it together. You make something to eat. Make a little paste. You can boil it and bake it. And very versatile manna. And you can eat it in a lot of different ways. And only gather enough for that day. Don't gather enough for two. Gather enough for one day. Tomorrow, I'll supply the manna again. Okay, so here's my guess. You think about this for yourself. Day one, after the manna, thank God, some given manna, they walk out of their tents, there it is. How much manna would you gather? I don't know about you, I would gather a whole truckload full of manna, right? Because here's what I'd be figuring. I know I got manna today. I'm not sure if God's coming through tomorrow, but I know I got some today. I'm going to gather enough manna for the whole week. And if God does give some tomorrow, I'll just take a few days off, right? So I'll gather enough manna for a week or two. And so they bring it in. You know what happened the next day? Maggots in the manna. No lie. God put maggots in the manna. God said, I told you one day at a time. You'll never learn. Now you got maggots. You get a little protein with the manna, I guess. I don't know. But he said, okay, gather for six days. And those that went out and gathered too much, they had maggots in the manna, had to throw it out. But on the seventh day, right, the day they got to rest, the day they were supposed to reflect, that they were supposed to move from creation to creator, God says, no manna on the seventh day. No manna. Gather enough manna on the sixth day for two days. Then you got kind of two days worth of manna. Now, here's what I'd be thinking. I've been through this before. I don't want maggots in the manna. My wife complained. We had, manna, you know, we had maggots all over the cupboard. I'm only gathering enough manna for the sixth day. There'll be manna on the seventh day. And they went out the seventh day, and there was no manna. And those that gathered enough for two days, there were no maggots in the manna. So what in the world is going on? Well, here's what's going on. God said, tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest. Don't gather. Don't gather manna on the seventh day. Notice. They were to go from what they were experiencing to the God that said it. They were to move from that ceasing and reflecting to trusting. They were to move to trusting God. Now here's, I think, kind of what's going on. Remember when your kids were little or when you were real little? When your kids are little, you really can't train them inside out, can you? Look, we all want our kids to grow up with character. We want them to have integrity. You know, we, we want them, you know, to live with values. How easy is it to sit down with a two-year-old? Now, let me tell you about character, all right? Look, you don't, you don't want to be a person who doesn't have integrity. You need to say, tell the truth. They don't get it like that, right? Kids don't learn. When they're little kids, they don't learn inside out. They learn outside in. Now, we all know that true change comes inside out, but often education and training goes outside in. 
That's kind of what God's doing. And so it seems like at the beginning here, it seems like in Genesis 1, it kind of seems like in Exodus, it seems like it's all about outside in. But notice, God wants to teach on the inside, but he kind of knows he has to do some things on the outside, hoping to communicate and develop some lessons and trust on the inside. So let's do something on the outside, and I'll teach you on the inside. See how that works? God's doing with us and with Israel the way we do with kids. How do we know? Well, we have Hebrews. Check this out when it comes to Sabbath. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What? There remains? Well, the Sabbath rest was supposed to be the seventh day, right? Kind of work six days, and then on the seventh day, look around and cease and reflect and move from creation, the good and the bad, to the creator. It's not supposed to be this way. How is it supposed to be? Yes, and this is beautiful and wonderful. What's that teach us about God? See how that works? Move from creation to creator. And once you focus on the creator, I can trust the creator. He delivers manna every single day. And he says, collect two on the sixth day, one of any on the seventh. That's exactly what happened. This God is true to his word. I can trust him. He's all powerful. He loves me. This God can be trusted. And as I move from creation to creator, that's what I'm supposed to do. But there remains a Sabbath rest. For anyone who enters God's rest, rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter this rest. Well, what's going on? See, the writer of Hebrews is using Sabbath to help us understand the gospel. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Yeah, we're all hardwired to perform. We're all hardwired to accomplish and achieve and to be, you know, to accomplish goals. We're all hardwired like that. And it's real easy for that accomplishment and performance and accumulation. It's real easy to take that stuff that we're hardwired to and our culture supports. It's real easy to take that and have it spill over into our spiritual lives. So before you know it, we think we're performing our way to acceptance with God. Before you know it, we're achieving forgiveness before God. Before you know it, we kind of think we're working and achieving our forgiveness and acceptance and salvation and redemption. We can work hard enough and get it. And God says, no. Remember Sabbath. Sabbath is a time to cease. A time to reflect. This world is beautiful and it points to an awesome creator. And here's the other side. And you're really screwed up. And you stand no shot of performing yourself out of that mess. You and I have no shot of working off all of our sin and finding acceptance before God. And even though you can't do that, if you could, and you work off all the sin by doing good and penance and stuff, are you ever going to be able to work perfect righteousness? How about all the time you wasted doing sin? You can't do it. Sabbath is a reminder that we're in a difficult spot and can do nothing about it, but Jesus took care of it. Jesus did the work that we can't do. But you need to stop long enough and you need to reflect so you can trust. But if you're living on that treadmill 24-7, if you never take time to cease and you never take time to reflect, you'll never trust because it's 100 miles an hour and we're kind of hardwired to perform and achieve and accomplish and you somehow think you're going to do that spiritually and God says, no, remember Sabbath. It's not a day. 
It's a way. It's a way of living. It's a way of saying, you know what? I need to stop all this frantic activity and all this performing and all this achieving and all this accomplishment and all this accumulation. And I need to realize that what really matters before God and what guarantees and secures eternity with him forever for me is not a work I do. I just rest in Jesus, my ultimate Sabbath, who did the work and now calls me to gospel rest. God's teaching us from the outside to change the inside. Sabbath is not about a day. It's not about rules and regulations. Sabbath is a way. And God teaches outside in so we get it on the inside. And it really changes so then we change inside out. Is that how it works? Now some of you think, oh, that, that's pretty cool. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. No, 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 no. I can tell you all need a few suggestions. You all need a couple of um, points where you can apply. And I'll tell you right up front. Most of our failures don't come about because we don't understand principles. Most of our failures come about because we don't execute on the principles. So I'm going to kind of take those principles and put them into bite-sized pieces for you. Now, I'm going to share some suggestions. None of these suggestions are in the Bible. These are kind of in my notes and in my head. All right, so yeah, well, you know what that's worth then. Um, but they kind of are principle based. You need to kind of tweak them and make them yours. All right? So I can tell you this though. If you're going to make change, here's what you do you have to recognize where you are. You have to look ahead and see where you want to be. Just like if you use Waze on your phone, right? You have to put the destination in before you can get directions. Well, put the destination in and you get there. That's exactly what I'm going to do. We need a little help. For those of you under 35, this is a paper calendar, a day timer. This is my day timer, right? It has my name on the front. And uh, this is really a high-tech paper calendar. It has uh, months in the front. See that? And this one goes all the way through like uh, 2018. After that, I, I don't know. In the back, it has days, days. Now, you may say, paper calendar? Where do you get them? In antique shops and souvenir stores. That's where you get them. Now, now, you may say, well, I use Outlook. Fine, use Outlook. I use my phone. Fine, use your phone. Whatever you want to use, all I'm saying is, if you want to go from principle to making a change, you need a schedule. If you don't schedule, it's not going to happen. You need to take the principles, live them out in bite-sized, applicable pieces, or it's not going to work. All right? So you need a schedule. Maybe your schedule is a paper day timer. They work best. Maybe it's your Outlook you know, in your email, maybe it's your phone, maybe it's your iPad, maybe it's a calendar inside the kitchen door that you open up, maybe it's a calendar on the refrigerator, well, whatever it is, you got one, right? You need one, and you have to go through these steps. First one, you have to ask, what do I want to become? Well, that's where it starts. If you're standing at point A, you have to ask where you want to become in point B before you're ever going to get there. You start the scheduling process not with a list of to-dos. You start with a question, what do I want to become? If you're putting a bunch of to-dos in your calendar, that's the wrong first step. The first step is ask, what do I want to become? If you're standing at point A, you have to mark out point B where you want to be or you're never going to get there. You don't start throwing details into the calendar. You first ask, what do I want to become? So maybe you say things like this. Hmm. I want to become 
the most cranky, cantankerous, critical person I know. Fine. Then you got to schedule activities that cause you to be ticked off most of the time, right? Suppose you say, I want to be, my goal is, I want to be a workaholic that destroys my marriage, my family, and all other relationships. Okay, fine. Set out the destination, and then you're going to fill your calendar to get you there. See how that works? First of all, you ask the question, what do I want to become? Once you ask, what do you want to become, maybe that's a more engaged spouse. That's a good thing, right? Well, I can tell you this. You can have as the thing, I want to become a more engaged spouse. If you never put anything in your schedule, you're not going to be a more engaged spouse. I want to be a more engaged parent. If you don't put anything in your calendar that's going to help you be with the kids, you're never going to be a more engaged parent. They say, I want to be a better friend. Well, then you better put some friend stuff in your calendar or it's never going to happen. If your calendar is nothing more than a collection of everything you have to do, you're never going to become what you want to become. What you want to become is a dream. You start scheduling with, what do I want to become? Then you schedule strategically items that will lead you to that destination. So, for example, you say, I want to be more healthy at the end of 2017. I want to be more healthy. Well, then you better schedule going to the gym and not eating like a pig. All right? You got to schedule that stuff, right? Maybe say, I want to schedule. I, I want to be someone that knows the Bible better. Well, then you better schedule time in, the, in your calendar and in your schedule to read the Bible or join a small group or take a Bible class online. You see what I'm saying? you got to start with what you want to become. That's the first thing. Then you schedule strategically items that will get you to that destination. If you just start throwing to-dos in your calendar, you're going to wind up the beginning of 2018 the same place you are now. First question, what do you want to become? And remember, cease, reflect, trust. Remember those? Cease, reflect, trust. They better be somewhere in your calendar, right? Cease, reflect, trust on a regular basis. They need to be part of the calendar. Schedule strategically. Actually, the New Testament speaks to this. Paul writes it like this in Ephesians 5. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Make the most of every opportunity. You're not going to make the most of every opportunity if you don't have some sense of priority. Cease, reflect, trust. What do you want to become? And then you schedule things that will get you to that destination. You got it? All right, next one. Make church non-negotiable. Now, you may be saying, well, yeah, but church is boring. No, that, that's okay. Right? You do other boring things during your life too, right? Um, and you don't have to take my word for it. Here's a verse, um, and the last four words are most telling. Here's a verse from Luke. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. Look at this. As was his custom. Pretty weird, isn't it? As was his custom. Jesus didn't sit around flipping coins, deciding whether he should go to church that day or not, right? Jesus said, no, you know, oh, Sabbath, got to go to, got to go to synagogue, got to go. Did he go to learn something? No. He wrote the book they were reading from. He knew a whole lot more than the guys preaching, Right? He didn't go to get everything he could out of the service, right? 
as, I mean, that's amazing to think about, right? As was his custom. Think of all the reasons that you come up with, you know, well, I don't want to go today. You know, Charles is speaking. He's so long. It never ends on time. Well, yeah, Jesus went to and he heard boring preachers, right? Jesus went to and he sat next to people that he really didn't, well, maybe he liked them. I don't know. You get the point. As was his custom. Make church non-negotiable. Don't flip coins. Be committed to be here. And here's another one. You never know when God will do something significant. I know I, I talk to some parents and some church attenders, and they say things like this. Well, you know, it's not the quantity of time, Charles. It's the quality time. That's true. I'll let you know a little secret. You only get quality time in the context of a quantity of time. You don't know when the magic's going to happen. You don't know when all of a sudden, I may have a good sermon one of these years. Uh, and you want to be here that day, Right? Um, you never know when the Spirit's going to do something really significant. But if you're never here, you flip a coin. Look, chances are, if you only come once in a while, you're never going to have it happen. If you're here regularly, wow, you might say, wow, that song was great. Boy, we sang together. My heart was lifted. I'm energized. I'm engaged, right? You never know. Oh, and here's another one. We shouldn't only come and primarily come for what we're getting out of the service. You never read that anywhere in the Bible. Doesn't say, go to church to get everything you can out of it. If you're not getting anything, go somewhere else. What? The Bible would say things like this. Go to church and give something to it. Go to that community and give to the community. When you walk in, look for people to connect with. Show up at Calvary on a Sunday and say, now whose day can I make? You know, make my day. Whose day can I make? Whose morning can I make? Who can I come alongside and help and encourage Let's come giving, not primarily just coming to get. Hopefully you'll get a lot of cool things too. But our attitude should be, what can I give? We show up to give, not primarily to get. Um, here's another one. Live in community. You know, if you really want to put some teeth into your schedule and into your making church non-negotiable, that hopefully will be leading you to where you want to be, you'll let a couple people in on your calendar. Nothing like having other people know will put teeth to it. Uh, Kim and I have inside our wedding rings engraved, two are better than one. Because they'll have a better return on their, you know, that, that's a good principle. Two are better than one. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, you know, but there's so many people at Calvary. How in the world do I live in community? Okay, here's an idea. Most of you sit in the same seats every week because you're so boring, right? I mean, it's the same thing, sit there, and you complain about the, okay, but maybe we do this. Since most of us, you know, rather than looking at, as only, looking at that only as a bad thing, why don't we look at that as a good thing and say something like this. Since you sit in the same seat and most people sit in the same seat every week, that means you sit around the people you sit around every week. Do you know their names? Do you know anything about their families? Do you know where they work? When's the last time you prayed for the people in a 25-foot radius around where you're sitting? Why not take that little section of people that you sit around, that little community, and make them your little group? After the service, rather than running out, spend some time talking to them before you go to Next Step Space. Get to know their names. Ask about their families. Ask them where they work. Ask if there are things you can pray for. Take them out to dinner. Go to breakfast before the service. You know, look for ways creatively and simply to build community with the people around you. And while you're there, say, I'm putting you in my schedule. I'm putting you in my calendar. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Rather than complain Calvary's too big, make it smaller. You can do that. And the last one. Always ask why. That goes right back to the first one again, right? 
How do you start your schedule? You start by saying, what do I want to become? You then strategically fill in your schedule, making sure you have ample time and energy to what you want to become. You then enlist some other people to help you make church non-negotiable, and you tenaciously ask why, because inevitably, the tyranny of the urgent and that performance treadmill is going to pull you back on, and you're going to be back. So always, why am I doing this? Why is this in my calendar? Why did I work every night this week? Why am I addicted to my phone? Why can't I turn it off? And always ask why and go back to the first question, what do you want to become? See how that works? How that makes sense? Sabbath's not about a day primarily. Sabbath is, Sabbath's not about do's and don'ts. Sabbath is about a way of life. It's about a way of life that says we need to cease, stop. Just stop it, stop. And reflect. Go from creation to the creator, an awesomely powerful, loving God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do the work that you and I couldn't do. The pressure's off. The big work's been done. All the heavy lifting's done. We just have a few little details to mop up. God gives us on the way. And just in case you ever get confused about that, here are a couple of verses you may want to memorize when it comes to Sabbath and rest from Matthew. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, all of you that run through life like basset hounds, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I kind of set you up. You all raised your hands at the beginning of this message and said, you're weary and burdened, hurried and worried. You know what the answer to that is? Stop it. Reflect. Trust Jesus. He did the heavy lifting for you. You can rest. The pressure's off. We're going to take communion. You know what communion really is? Ceasing. Just stop. Stop. Pretend your phone's not there for like five minutes. Just cease. Reflect. Go from creation and the elements you're going to hold in your hand to what those elements represent. The body and blood of Jesus given so our heavy lifting is done and we can rest forever in the arms of God. And trust. You want to know who you can trust? We live in a world where you don't know who to trust or what to trust. I'll tell you who you can trust. You can always trust a God who saw the difficult plight you were in and you could do nothing about it. He came and did the work that you couldn't do and gives you the solution. You can trust a God like that. Cease, reflect, trust. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. They're going to serve you the bread. And you can kind of take the bread whenever you feel ready and eat it. But don't take too long because they're then immediately going to serve the cup. But don't drink the cup. We're going to drink that together. Now, I'm going to ask you to multitask, not because we're hurried and worried, but I want you to multitask. To help you reflect, we're ceasing, nothing else is going to be going on. To help you reflect and to trust, I want you to listen carefully to the words that Justin and the band are going to sing. Because those words will remind us what we need to be reflecting on and why we can trust Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for doing all the heavy lifting through Jesus so that the main work is all done. We can now rest. You give us a few things to do, but we do them in your power, with your energy, for the purpose of the gospel. 
Help us, Lord, to do them in your strength and in your energy. Making sure we punctuate our lives the way we're ending our service. Ceasing. Reflecting. Trusting. You deserve it, Jesus. Thanks. Amen.